Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Back in the early 1980s, First Lady Nancy Reagan popularized then championed the Just Say No campaign. This was a campaign to specifically teach kids to say no to drugs, but generally to teach them how to stand up against peer pressure. Somehow this concept of when to say and how to say and who can say no has been flipped on its head. On today's episode, first, I'm going to need to go ahead and fog those lungs of yours, for your own good. And then we'll hear the states cry, because I don't want to. And after the outro, goals update number V. So, go get a loaf of bread for all this lung butter, and suck it up. You're not in charge here, because I'm going to give you an offer you can't refuse. Here we go. So we all know why you keep coming back to the Logical Christian Podcast. I mean, you're looking for answers, right? You're looking for truth. You're looking for logic. And you're looking for solutions. You may want to get out your notebook, your quill, and your inkwell. That powder stuff you're supposed to sprinkle over the ink. Point is, you'll want to take some notes here because I'm going to, in rapid fashion, solve a number of your problems right now. First, do you ever get an ingrown toenail? painful little sucker, so I've been told. If you never want another ingrown toenail, chop off your toes. Problem solved. Hate when you get that speck of something in your eye? Well, just poke your eyes out. Problem solved. Your back hurt all the time? I can identify with that. Just constant pain, right? Well, snap your neck, severing the spinal cord. No more back pain. Problem solved. Would you like to avoid respiratory illnesses like RSV or ah, what's that one uh, barely here? COVID. Wrap your head nice and tight in plastic wrap. No more infected air getting into those lungs. (laughs) No more virus. Problem solved. Now, you may be wondering what's going on. What's wrong with me? Have I lost my mind? Yes, but that's beside the point. Found on NewScientist.com headline, Inhaled powder that coats airways can block coronavirus infection. See, we just coat the inside of the lungs with something and boom, no more virus. Problem solved. So this sounds like a great idea. I think you can definitely agree with me on that one. And I see no way that this could ever cause problems. But just food for thought here. Are any of you like me as a kid, you ate those pixie sticks and you inhaled the powder If I remember correctly, that that didn't go well. But I'm sure that this inhaled powder will go much better. I mean, if druggies can do it, we all can, right? So the byline of this article says, quote, A gel that lines the respiratory tract prevents coronavirus infections in mice and monkeys and may also work against future new variants. Huh? Now how much you want to try it? Huh? Yeah. So the premise is that we have a powder. You inhale the powder. I guess it absorbs the moisture and stuff in the lungs, turns into a gel, coats your lung innards. They say that it, quote, may be effective against any SARS-CoV-2 variant, including future ones that could evolve 
to evade existing vaccines. Now, hold, hold on. Don't say it. Don't say anything yet. I, I know, I know future variants that would dare to evade the nearly 112% effective vaccines. I know, but wait, there's, there's so much more here. The article continues, quote, vaccines have been critical for containing the COVID-19 pandemic, but their efficacy may wane as the coronavirus that causes it mutates. Now, you may think this article was written in maybe early 2022, when the vaccine efficacy claim was sitting at a solid 95% or better, and all the talking heads, the clearly smarter than you, self-proclaimed scientists, were telling you how much this was saving the world. Remember Rachel Maddow saying that if you got the shot, it literally killed the virus right then and there. You wouldn't get sick, and you couldn't pass it on. Oh, but no, no, this was seriously written only a few days ago, February 9th of uh, the year of our Lord 2023. I'm not sure what the author's source is, but whatever the so-called vaccine was, it's definitely not effective at all right now. And despite the lies, I get that confused all the time, the claims that it would stop you from getting sick or passing it on to someone else, we now all know or at least most of us do, that neither of those claims are, uh, well, they're not true at all, are they? So, just like those on the left claim they wanted abortion to be safe, legal, and rare, but they actually meant legal, safe-ish if possible, and as much as possible at any point during pregnancy or after pregnancy, you know, whatever, well, the claims of the injection being safe and effective actually mean not safe at all and, and also not effective at all. But do what you're told or, or else. So in response to the terrifying but highly unlikely possibility that the vaccine isn't perfectly safe and entirely effective, at some point in a very distant, very dystopian future, Kaching, no, really his name is Kaching, K-E-C-H-E-N-G, Kaching of North Carolina State University and his team, quote, wondered if they could create a barrier for the airways that temporarily blocks the virus from causing infections. This could protect people against new variants while new vaccines are developed or old ones are updated. Oh, if only there was something we could do while waiting for more and more vaccines. Well, so what did they do? They created a powder consisting of polymer and gelatin microparticles. When it's inhaled, it, quote, enters the mucus lining of the nasal passage and lungs, swelling to form a gel layer that blocks viral penetration. Now, before you scoff like a scoffing scoffer, quote, when tested in mice, the powder's particles remained at high levels in their lungs for eight hours, blocking the virus from causing an infection with up to 75% efficiency, with no safety concerns. <laughs> I mean, one could almost say that this inhaled powder is both safe and effective, as tested and verified by actual scientists with absolutely no concerns whatsoever, being fully, totally tested on animals, monitoring them not only for minutes or hours, no, no, but days, a handful of them, just to be sure it's safe for the long term for humans. Additionally, uh, quote, it was administered to six African green monkeys via an inhaler device. Eight hours later, the monkeys were inoculated with the original SARS-CoV-2 strain or its Delta variant, 
introduced into the animal's noses or into their lungs via a tube. Tests carried out several times over the next week revealed that the treated monkey's viral loads, the amount of virus in the body, were 50 to 300-fold lower than those of the animals in a control group that didn't receive the gel before viral inoculation. And, quote, the gel coating didn't seem to impair breathing or cause any other side effects. So let's recap the facts quickly before moving on, shall we? A powder made up of polymer and gelatin swells in the nasal passage and lungs. It creates a gel. Particles hung out for eight hours was 75% effective. Well, up to. Absolutely no safety concerns. It didn't seem to impair breathing, and it didn't seem to cause any other side effects. Remember, for multiple days of, of close monitoring. I mean, when I think of warm and fuzzy, this study and this plan, I mean, this is what I think of right here. So Chang wants to get approval from the FDA to do human trials, because of course he does, and surprisingly, I can almost guarantee that he will not get that approval. Well, okay, maybe he'll get human trial approval because, you know, humans are a dime a dozen. They're just everywhere. And we have approximately 7 billion too many of them on this planet right now anyway. But I can't see any way he'd ever get full approval, not unless he sells this tech to some big pharma company who has deep enough pockets to help, you know, persuade the FDA. Now, I'm not saying that the FDA would ever consider a bribe in any form or fashion. I'm just saying that the FDA appears to be a corrupt organization more interested in lining their pockets than they are actually in keeping our food and or drugs and or associations of said food and or drugs safe. And despite Kaching's name, I, I, I'm just kind of guessing he doesn't have the scratch to grease the applicable wheels. Hey, we'll see, though. Chang's plan would be for this to be administered through like an inhaler, right? Like those pesky asthma-having humans use, you know, some of the 7 billion we could do away with. And he believes that this would give a, quote, short-term protection for people entering crowded places such as supermarkets or aircraft. Chang said, and well, you're going to want to sit down for this blasphemy, quote, even with an N95 mask, the virus can sometimes find its way in. So this could be an extra layer of protection. Now look, I don't know why he doesn't believe in science. I'm not sure how he thinks he's going to just get away with this kind of mis and or disinformation. We all know you don't even need an N95 mask or a mask that covers your nose or mouth. Just the simple threat of a mask causes all viruses or viri or whatever to tremble and cower. As a selling point, as if you're not completely on board right now anyway, which if you're not, what's wrong with you? Quote, in another part of the experiment, the team found the gel stopped mice from becoming infected with flu and pneumonia-causing viruses, suggesting that it could protect against a range of respiratory viruses with pandemic potential, says Chang. <laughs> oh, good. You have no idea how happy I am that a, a simple lung gel could protect me from getting sick. I mean, sign me up. Maybe just put a hood over my head with a constant cloud of lung dust. And that way I'm, you know, super safe. Can you imagine the snot blobs that'll partially shoot out after you coat your airways with a gel? <gasps> Whew, yikes. So I really only have one question here. Um, 
Can we just not? That's that's the question. Can we just not? What is it about this one particular respiratory virus, if that's what it really is, that's caused such a fear, such panic that we must do all things that we would never have done ever, ever, ever in order to not get a cold for a little while? And I mean, I know that at first a number of people died. And of course, that number is nowhere near what's reported as COVID deaths, unless you're living under a rock or watching CNN all the time, you absolutely know that's correct. As for this clown suggesting an N95 mask protects against a virus, well, I invite him, as I've invited many, to don said mask, and let's go abate friable asbestos. You know, just free-floating asbestos fibers. Now, if he's got any brain cells left that he can rub together, he'd tell me that I was crazy, and no way would he do that. And he'd be right. But see, here's the deal. I can see the fibers, and yet I know that they'll get past my mask, N95 or otherwise. I can't see a virus. So somehow that same mask will, I guess, magically stop a virus? <laughs> no, not according to every single study ever conducted, including 14 studies over 40 years done by the CDC regarding public masking against the flu. Yeah, masks have never and will never do anything against a virus. Let's dispel that little myth. As an engineer who understands filtration to a great enough degree. It's just literally not possible. It makes no logical sense. As for the efficacy of vaccines, well, I'm actually just shocked that anyone would claim that at this point they're still effective. I found a site, healthdata.org, that has the effectiveness of it appears to be every COVID so-called vaccine around the globe against severe disease and also against infection of every variant thus far. It's a nice little table, a little clunky to read, but very informative. As always, I'll put a link in the notes. I recreated the table in Excel and calculated the min, max, and average effectiveness against severe disease and infection for the 12 alleged vaccines. There was one vaccine that was just garbage. It was just not effective at all, according to the data, at least. So I'm removing that one, leaving 11, you know, so it doesn't skew the average. I'm trying to be as lenient and fair as possible with these numbers. And keep in mind that I'm just accepting this table as correct. So... For the original strain against infection, we had an average effectiveness of the 11 vaccines of 76%, with a low of 62, a high of 92%. Against severe disease, we had an average of 85%, with a low of 66, a high of 97. Now, for the beta, gamma, and delta variants, they each averaged exactly the same. Somehow, 75% against infection, 83% against severe disease. You may notice that those numbers are lower than, than the originals. And then we get to the BA variants. I mean, well, that's got to be everybody's favorite variants, right? For, so for the BA.1, .2, and .5, they drop to 39% effective against infection, 62% against severe disease. So if you get the vaccine, even with the abundantly clear data that they may be very unsafe you still have a 60% chance of getting sick and a 40% chance of getting very sick. But, you know, <laughs> just do it. I know, a lot of numbers. Point is, Kaching is creating an expanding, life-saving, totally safe and effective lung gel just in case the vaccines become ineffective. I mean, dude, they already have, and it appears that life will go on despite the fear-mongering fear-mongers that are mongering in fear. Second, his gel. 
that let's be honest, just like these vaccines have not gone through drug trials the way they should have or for the duration they should have. And they certainly have absolutely no long term side effect data or safety data associated with them. This gel, this mystery gel is being touted as a whopping up to 75 percent effective. So I could inhale this powder every eight hours as needed and still have at a minimum a one in four chance of being infected. Well, I'd say with a relatively mild nature, despite alleged news reports of this virus at this point in its evolution and our herd immunity, it's got to be a no for me, dog. Third, I have concern about what this is made of. He said it's made of a polymer and gelatin. Now, when I think polymer, I think plastic, but there are natural polymers as well which I guess would make some sort of sense since the term polymer simply means many parts. It's a chain of something made up of many single parts or monomers. I'll let you noodle out what monomers stands for. I looked up natural polymers and apparently we used to get polymers from plants and animals a lot more, but of course we're now trying to synthesize and make all those nice fake natural polymers. But things like nucleic acids and proteins, these are natural polymers. They exist in the human body. Another natural polymer is cellulose. It's a plant fiber, basically. We can't digest it, but our bodies do use it. I know that we have water-soluble polymers. I used to work for a company that made water-soluble polymers, which are a component in those plasticky time-release medicine capsules, for instance, among many other things. The specific product I'm thinking of gets very slippery when sliding across something and very sticky when pulling it apart. I'm assuming the water-soluble polymer is likely what they're using in combination with this gelatin, which I can't even imagine the horrible I-need-to-clear-my-throat-goo feeling that would be in my lungs for apparently at least eight hours. Now, when I worked for that manufacturer, we would fairly routinely walk through a small amount of dust. Although we did everything we could to keep any powder from escaping, it's inevitable that there would be at least a little dust in the air. And I'm not concerned that it did me any long-term harm or any harm at all, to be honest. But if I was intentionally injecting a shot of powder into my lungs multiple times a day or multiple times a week, what would the long-term effect of that be? And that's the question. Nobody really knows. This stuff was darn near impossible to get off your hands, your shoes, your clothes. What would it do in the lungs? Would it build up? Would it plug up over time? Would it seep into the bloodstream? And what would gel particles do inside a bloodstream? We, we're not talking about clotting again here, are we? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all for medical advancements. I truly believe that medicine and medical advancements are a gift from God, and I'm not opposed to trying things. But can we just stop with this rush to try to avoid getting sick with a virus that has settled down to just another respiratory infection? I'm currently reading a book from the 1950s about the manipulation of the mind. Now, I thought this was a more recent book, but as I started it, I figured out that no, it's about 70 years old. Now, I'll give a little bit more info in my goals update in a few weeks after I finish the book, but this author is basing his case heavily on the Nazism of World War II and the POW camps of the Korean War, and what we're seeing today is exactly what the author is writing about from back then. It's almost like the nefarious manipulation of the mind, of society as a herd, has never changed. It's only become more effective over time. The psychological manipulation that's been done on the population is frankly horrifying, and fear has been the main driver of this, as he terms it, 
menticide, the mass destruction of the mind. When specifically looking at COVID, we, because God has given us intelligence, creativity, logic, and problem-solving skills, we've determined multiple possible ways of preventing or eliminating infection and illness and death. But because of fear being an emotion that in this case has become more powerful than rationality, we've apparently lost the ability to logically evaluate potential solutions for practicality and efficacy. Sadly, we see this in both Christians and non-Christians, which is completely unacceptable in my opinion. But then again, there are aspects of my life that are completely unacceptable from a Christian worldview as well. I don't want to be a hypocrite here. But that said, there was a time, I call it the before times, when a cold was a cold, our respiratory virus was a chest cold, where the immune system was God-given, when we didn't freak out over the very thought of getting sick. Now we're rushing gene-altering injections to market for not only COVID, but also RSV and flu. And the scuttlebutt around the various medical agencies is a new mRNA shot for practically everything coming soon to a drugstore near you. Just inject our way to unending health. And we have been so brainwashed using fear as the catalyst that we simply can't get sick because sick equals dead. We're just willing, because of that, to roll up sleeves, lift up shirts, and drop trowel in order to get injected anywhere and everywhere so we don't get sick. We'll mask up, suit up, glove up, throw on face shields and goggles, use disinfectant wipes on our groceries, on our steering wheels, put masks over the vents of the car, swim wearing a mask, wear a hula hoop outside to ensure proper distancing, and the list it goes on ad infinitum. Like I said, there used to be a time when you would get sick, and then you were done being sick. And yeah, I mean, I get it. COVID is scarier, but people have always died from flu or pneumonia or even the common cold. And somehow, society in general has managed to live without crippling fear of an illness. Now, some say the most often, and it's at least one of the most oft-repeated commands in the Bible, is to fear not. But even those individuals that we read about in the Bible, considering them to have great faith that we read accounts of them speaking directly with God in some form or fashion, they show that fear overrides even their faith in God from time to time. Look at Moses being told to go free the Israelites. God's speaking from a burning bush, and he still tried to get out of it. Or look at the Israelites that Moses freed at many times in their wilderness wanderings. With the pillar of smoke or pillar of fire, the manifestation of God with them, having passed through massive walls of water as the sea parted not once but twice, having innumerable fears of starving or dying of thirst or being destroyed by the enemy. What about Gideon putting out a fleece, then doing it again because he was afraid? And then even after that, Gideon, when told to go attack the Midianites and the Amalekites by God, that God was giving them into his hand, God said, quote, But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So what did Gideon do? He went down to the camp. He was afraid. Look at Peter walking on the water, then sinking into the water. Look at Peter denying Jesus. And we would all do the same. I'm not saying they did anything humanly unusual, just that these were people that walked and talked directly with God in various forms, and they still had fears that overrode their rational minds. 
Now, I've come back to it time and time again. Come back to it again here. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Some translations say a sound mind rather than self-control. The Greek word for the phrase of a sound mind is sophronismos, sophronismos, something like that. According to Thayer's Greek lexicon, the first definition of this word is, quote, an admonishing or calling to soundness of mind. Now, although this word is a noun, right, it's a thing, a sound mind, a thing, it's apparently a forceful way of saying it, not just stating a fact that the Christian possesses this self-control, this sound mind rather than fear. It's more of a, uh, you have it, now do something with it. Don't just look at it, use that sound mind, you know, and admonishing. Throughout history, man has tolerated, justified, and rationalized just so much. I mean, think of it, mistreatment, abuse, oppression. We've gone along to get along. We've tried not to rock the boat. At times, we've done things we never would have done for the sake of survival. And although Satan isn't omniscient, he's not omnipotent, he's not omnipresent, he is very smart and cunning, and he has a 6,000-year history of how man acts and reacts to every situation. Satan loves to use fear and doubt, direct attack on faith, to try to destroy humanity. Fear wields an amazing amount of power, and mass fear, or mass hypnosis, mass psychosis, is even more powerful. We, my fellow humans, and especially my fellow Christians, must do all we can to combat fear in every way that we can. Now, I'm not saying, as some Christians are, that our immune system was designed perfect, so we don't need any medical intervention. All natural homeopathic remedies are all we need, and to use anything else is just a lack of faith. No. Although our systems were designed perfect, I'll agree with that, the entropy of sin has degraded our immune system as well. That said, you'd have to admit it's crazy how good it does work after 6,000 years of copies of copies of humans. But no, I think that medical science is amazing, and as I said, a gift from God. But fear-based decisions due to irrational fear or external pressures, I don't believe honor God. This is why I have no problem with a faith-based exemption to this injection or any other injection or medical intervention, as it's our job to care for the body, the image of God that we've been given. At some point, a lung gel may prove to be a very effective way to avoid certain airborne viruses or whatever. At some point, an mRNA vaccine for everything may be 100% effective with no downside. At some point, we may be able to think up, design, and synthesize new medications and vaccines in a matter of weeks or months and have no concern about negative side effects. But that time simply isn't now. We're just not advanced to anything remotely close to that. So these rushed, admittedly barely trialed injections that everyone clamored for simply out of blind trust or blind fear were a huge gamble based on human wisdom, propaganda, and persuasion. Now, I fear that this lung gel could be the same thing. Let me ask you this. For those that did or didn't get the shot or shots, did you seek God on this? Did you pray about your decision? Did you search the scriptures? Did you self-analyze to figure out if it was logic or emotion that was driving your decision? Did you use your sound mind or did you cave to fear? Did you rely on God or did you just trust man? Now, I know some felt that God led them to get this injection. 
And it's possible. I won't say that didn't happen. But those that earnestly sought God's will through prayer, through meditation on the scriptures, for this decision are few and far between. But all of that right now, it's water under the bridge. So the real question is, what will we do? What will you do going forward? If you're prone to fear, and some people are, will you allow that fear to control the next decision? Or will you use that sound mind you're admonished to use to rationally evaluate what you're being told before doing what you're told? We must learn. We must grow in wisdom. We must seek God's will and guidance. And if necessary, we must choose to be contrarians to the accepted agenda if that agenda is counter to what we've discerned the will of God is for our lives. We can and should be Bereans about more than just the scriptures. We can search out information. We can pray and meditate on God's word. We can study all available resources in order to arrive at our decisions. And not only can we do that, but we must do that. Article 3 of the Constitution has to do with the powers granted to the judicial branch in the United States. It sets up the Supreme Court and the basis for all of the lower courts. Welcome back to the American Genesis, episode 27, which is part 9 of our look at the amendments to the Constitution. So if we're looking at the amendments, why do we care about setting up the Supreme Court? Well, I'm glad you asked. In 1793, a court case named Chisholm v. Georgia was brought before the Supreme Court. Now, this was not the first case the Supreme Court heard, the first being Van Staphorst v. Maryland in 1791, which was settled out of court before, before they ever heard any arguments. The first case it actually was decided on was West v. Barnes, which was also in 1791. And although I, I tried to find records of all of the first cases, I decided that... Uh, <laughs> wasn't easy to do, so I gave up having done a moderate amount of research, but it appears that this case, Chisholm v. Georgia, was at least in the first 10 cases, and it's been given the distinction of being the first case with actual significance that was decided upon. So, the background of this case extends back to 1777. Apparently, as part of the war effort, the Executive Council of Georgia authorized Thomas Stone and Edward Davies to act as commissioners of the state to purchase desperately needed supplies for the troops stationed in Savannah. They came upon one Robert Farquhar, a South Carolina merchant, and agreed on a purchase price of $169,613.33 in continental currency for the needed goods. Now, Farquhar passed away in 1784, but had still never been paid for the goods that he sold and provided to the state. The estate with Alexander Chisholm, a merchant in Charleston, South Carolina, filed a claim with the state of Georgia in 1789 for the money due on the debt. A state committee convened and sent a report back saying they owed nothing, as Thomas Stone and Edward Davies, the negotiators of the deal, had withdrawn the funds from the state treasury but apparently never paid the debt, so the estate should just sue those two guys. Well, as one would expect, this really wasn't a satisfactory answer, as Chisholm was not interested in fighting George's battle. He just wanted the debt fulfilled by the state that agreed to pay. So he sued the state of Georgia in the U.S. Circuit Court for the District of Georgia for 100,000 pounds sterling. Well, in October 1791, 
the case was heard. Georgia's governor argued that Georgia was a, quote, free, sovereign, and independent state and cannot be drawn or compelled to answer against the will of the said state of Georgia before any justices of the federal circuit court for the District of Georgia or before any justices of any court of law or equity whatsoever. So what exactly was the governor saying? Well, he basically claimed immunity from any lawsuits that he just didn't agree with. Essentially, in order to sue a state, the state has to agree to be sued. I mean, that's what he was saying. So clearly, that's a ridiculous stance. I mean, if you can just say you can't be sued because you don't want to be sued, I mean, that really seems unfair. So obviously, the governor was put in his place. Oh, no, no, they ruled in his favor. Oh, hmm, well. So the judge actually ruled that a state couldn't be sued by a citizen of another state, basing his decision on the Judiciary Act of 1789, which I'm not really interested in digging into right now. So, not to be deterred, and who could blame him, this was a substantial amount of money, Chisholm filed a new case with the Supreme Court. This was originally filed in early of 1792, but when the case came up, the state of Georgia didn't feel the need to send anyone to the court in their defense, so the attorneys for Chisholm agreed to hold the case over to the next session in 1793. Well, when that time rolled around, still nobody from the state showed up. I mean, can you just smell the arrogance? And so the court heard a one-sided case from Chisholm's attorneys. Upon hearing the case, the Supreme Court ruled 4-1 to in favor of Chisholm, stating that Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution absolutely extended federal judicial powers to lawsuits between a state and a citizen of a different state, and further that the power resided with the Supreme Court. They further stated that the Constitution provided no exception that limited the authority, making it a one-sided deal where a state could sue as a plaintiff but could not be sued as a defendant. So what does Section 2 of Article 3 say? Well, I'm not going to read the entire section, but I'll read and break down the pertinent part. So first, the hard stuff here, quote, The judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States and treaties made or which shall be made under their authority to all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, to controversies to which the United States shall be a party, to controversies between two or more states, between a state and citizens of another state, between citizens of different states, between citizens of the same state claiming lands under grants of different states, and between a state or the citizens thereof, and foreign states, citizens, or subjects. <laughs> okay, so really, for our purposes here, this comes down to who can sue who, and the combinations that the Constitution gave in this section were between two or more states, between a state and a citizen of another state, between citizens of different states, between citizens of the same state claiming lands under grants of different states, and between a state and or the citizens of a state and foreign states' citizens or subjects. I want you to notice a very key word here, between. See, the Constitution didn't say one against the other. It says between. To me, just reading it plainly, that means the plaintiff and defendant, or the sewer and the suey, can be either party. It can work both ways. From that perspective, the Supreme Court ruled correctly. This was a case between a state and a citizen of another state. Only one justice dissented, Justice James Iredell. Now, 
Iridell wasn't some rabble-rouser. He was in full support of independence. He was a supporter of the Declaration of Independence. He was nominated to the court by President George Washington. Now, I read a good chunk of his dissent, and when I say a good chunk, I mean maybe, maybe a quarter of his ten and a half thousand word dissent. Now, to give you some scope, at this point in this entire episode of the Logical Christian Podcast so far right now, not just this segment on the amendments, just right up to this point, the entire segment, we're at about 5,500 words. So double what you've listened to thus far, and you get his dissent. That said, it appears that what Iridell was looking for was Supreme Court precedents to decide this case in either direction between the state and the citizen of another state. He could not find a way in the Constitution or in the Judiciary Act of 1789 or in the constitutions of the individual states or in the old common law of England that would allow a federal body to override the sovereignty of a state where that state had not agreed to have its sovereignty taken away. In other words, Iridell rightly stated that the Constitution was not so much a mandate as it is an agreement between the federal government and each of the states, and the states will retain sovereignty in some parts and cede sovereignty to the federal government in other parts, and that both parties would respect those boundaries as agreed upon. Now, he wasn't, from what I could find, ruling if the state was right or wrong in not paying the money. He was arguing that the Constitution and later the Congress, through the Judiciary Act of 1789, nowhere showed that the states ceded their authority with regard to lawsuits in their sovereign districts. And I got to be honest, I think I'd have to agree with him here. Eh, but that said, he lost, right, as the other four justices sided with Chisholm. Well, needless to say which begs the question, why am I saying it? The states were a little shocked and a little scared that the ruling went against them. Calls from the states to protect their sovereignty immediately went to Congress, so Senator Caleb Strong of Massachusetts introduced an amendment to the Constitution to protect the states, which passed in March of 1794, sending it to the states to ratify or reject. The states ratified it, course they did as it was nothing but another right for them to hold and they ratified it in february of 1795 which created the 11th amendment the first in over three years since the bill of rights so really justice iridell being the only dissenting judge was really the judge that this amendment was based on so he lost but he won the 11th amendment reads as follows quote the judicial power of the United States shall not be construed to extend to any suit in law or equity commenced or prosecuted against one of the United States by citizens of another state or by citizens or subjects of any foreign state. Now, the amendment itself is fairly simple, but not if you don't know the background, which is why I spent the time to cover all of that background. If you don't have that, this amendment makes almost no sense whatsoever. So what happened with Chisholm? Well, the victory he won was apparently reversed and dismissed. This amendment was made retroactive, which kind of seems dirty to me, but I guess it's been 225 years, probably nothing I can do about it now. So does this mean that the Supreme Court just simply can't hear suits from a citizen of one state against another state? Well, 
No, this has been further clarified through subsequent rulings. For instance, the Supreme Court ruled later that the Congress has the authority to nullify this restriction as needed through Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, which we haven't arrived at yet, which allows them enforcement powers. They rule this way for cases of discriminatory state action, so the state you know, couldn't just get away with anything. Further rulings stated that the Supreme Court could get involved in cases that directly involved questions of the U.S. Constitution or of federal law, and later it was ruled that cases could be appealed, rather than newly filed, up to the Supreme Court, and then they can decide if it's a case they'll take on or not. And then lastly, if a state requests federal court involvement, it automatically waives the 11th Amendment protections. So this isn't an ironclad amendment by any means. Now, how do I feel about this amendment? If it actually matters, I don't know. I'll be honest, I don't really know. I mean, I personally don't like the idea that the entity you're trying to sue has the right to say no, and I think that would probably be my governing opinion on this. This is the case with the president as well, right? Seems like, you know, that's not a real fair system, right? At the same time, if this kind of protection wasn't in place, all states or whoever, all they would do is constantly defend themselves against anyone that wants to bring a frivolous lawsuit against them. It would just be constant. I think if we enacted loser pay laws where the loser has to pay the fees, any penalties, and whatever amount was being sought, I think those laws would go a long way to eliminating frivolous lawsuits. I think that maybe we could have a, I don't know, say a three-judge panel of some sort, federal, maybe out of an appeals court or a subset of the Supreme Court, maybe even like a grand jury that could look at these proposed lawsuits and rule if there were grounds to proceed. Maybe that could cut back on a lot of bogus suits. Bottom line, I don't agree that someone can just say no to being sued, but there are probably good ways of cutting out the clutter and the noise. And I think with that, I better bring this episode of the American Genesis to a close. If I try to hit Amendment number 12, well, this is going to run really long. And I'll be honest, time is getting away from me and I need to make some progress on my goals, which, remember, after the outro, goal update. So with that, I'll bid you adieu and say, until next time. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. So when is a good thing really depressing? Oh, when you're on a diet, of course. I'll explain in a moment. Week number five. I'd say that most everyone has probably failed on their New Year's resolutions by now. But don't worry. The Lenten season has arrived. Time to give up something, you know, for God. Just really quick, overindulge in whatever sin you're planning on giving up for a month or so, so then you can show how pious you are to God. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. The whole idea of Lent drives me crazy. Anywho, so far so good on the old goal front, so let's get into it here quick. Regarding weight loss. So, the weight loss continues to progress just fine. Over the last week, I lost another 1.4 pounds according to the magical scale, bringing my total loss to 11 pounds even. Weight is now 203.4, which gives me an average loss of 2.2 pounds per week, which is still better than my goal of 1.5. That said, 
Saturday and Sunday, I was in the 202s, but I step on the scale typically an hour and a half, maybe even a couple hours later than I normally do. And if you've ever really tracked your weight loss, you know that those couple hours make a huge difference for some unknown reason. So I thought, well, that's probably not accurate. But then I stepped on the scale at the normal time, in the normal scenario, Monday morning, 202.1. So I was excited about the weigh-in on Tuesday, right? I mean, not even cautiously optimistic or realistically optimistic, just full-blown, glass-half-full and filling-to-the-top optimism. And then, boom, after staying below my calories on Monday and working out, a gain of 1.3 pounds. Now, how could that happen, you ask? No idea. And this is where a good result, down another 1.4 pounds, is kind of depressing because my mind was set on more. Now, my guess is that the weight on Tuesday is probably more accurate, although I do initiate a calibrate cycle on the scale before hoisting my bulk up there every time, so it should be accurate, but yeah, I don't know. Who knows, right? This kind of thing happened last week also. Then Wednesday, I had a drop of, I think it was like 1.2 pounds overnight, which is totally realistic. Uh, Yeah, so we'll just keep staying the course, making good progress ahead of the game. We're getting there. So this goal, it stays solid green. Moving on to reading, thanks to a part break in the book, which had a page that was just announcing part two with some quote, I was able to manage 71 pages over the last week. I'll tell you what I'm reading and give a review in eh, probably two or three weeks when I get the book done, but it's safe to say that this is a much slower book. It's not boring by any means. It's actually really interesting. It's just a, a higher level of information. This is not a casual read, so I'm moving much slower through it, but I am really enjoying it. So as of now, I'm at 116% of my goal of 300 pages per month, still on a very good pace to keep this one in the solid green. Bible in a year by the end of September. So last time I had moved ahead of my goal pace at about 110% of my goal, and having kind of found my groove, hopefully, I've improved on that pace now at 124.7% of my goal pace. Now, How much retention of what I'm reading do I got going on here? Yeah, probably not near enough. But that's why this goal isn't just a goal and then you're done. This is the sort of thing where you finish and then you start over and you keep on gleaning and digging. Right now, this one is also at a solid green. Finally, devotions. Well, I was able to get back on track over the last week. I missed only one day. I can't remember which day, but I do remember getting ready, having to leave, and then thinking, ah, I forgot to do the devotion. Uh, well, it happens, right? But despite that one miss, I'm back over my goal pace, just just barely at 102.7%. That makes this goal solid green as well. In fact, in the five weeks I've been tracking these, this is the first time I've had solid greens across the board. Now, I think I should probably go celebrate with some five guys and then a cake. Right? Right? Please please say I'm right. All right. Anyway, so that's it. That's the update for week number five. Let's see if I can keep this going next week. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions, just let me know. See ya!